People talk a lot about how, oh, is there something cultural with Koreans or Asians in general that they're obedient, that they are listening to authority here. But actually, you know, people stopped following those social distancing guidelines and going out of the house and crowding parks at the same rate as anywhere around the world. The difference is that even as people did that, even as people were going back out and flouting some of those guidelines, people were still wearing masks. Uh, contact tracing was still happening. There were still as many tests as were needed, and the inf infection rates kept going down. You know, I think Korea is an example that shows you can open up and do it in a way that is still able to keep things under control. Hello and welcome to the Foreign Influence Podcast. I'm Bill, and that's Mark Zastro. He's a freelance science writer based in South Korea. South Korea's response to the novel coronavirus pandemic has been held up as an international model for how to flatten the curve and to keep people safe. I wanted to find out more of the details on how South Korea has been able to do this, so I called up Mark on the ubiquitous Zoom that we all seem to be using now, and I started out by asking him to give us a sketch of South Korea's system. Before there were even cases that were identified, you know, circulating in Korea, the government uh, enlisted the private sector, the biotech companies to produce uh, testing kits. And that was uh, back in, I believe, late January, early February. So those were ramping up. You know, obviously it takes a while for them to develop, but they fast-tracked these through the private sector. So one, they had a lot of kits. Two, they also had uh, contact tracing capabilities. And these had been developed after the 2015 MERS outbreak. And to many people, they sound intrusive because they encompass, you know, using a lot of data, using CCTV, using credit card transactions and uh, location from cell phone companies to immediately sort of, you know, trace where these people have been. They have actually a big data portal that can take in that information uh, within about 10 minutes, they say. So they, they get someone's ID, um, they put it into the system and they're able to get the clearance from the police uh, to get the data from the cell phone companies, the credit card companies within 10 minutes. So that um, is a huge inf you know, infrastructural build that has uh, really benefited the contact tracing efforts. And the other thing too, I would say is that, you know, there's a, a lot of public acceptance for that um, because of what the country went through during the MERS outbreak. I mean, Sometimes it's easy to forget this is not our first novel coronavirus outbreak. This is the second one we've had in, in two years, right? Because, of course, MERS was also a coronavirus. So being able to test, being able to trace, uh, and then being able to isolate people quickly, that's been the, the hallmark of, of the Korean response. Well, and that's, that is the basic model, right? Test, trace, isolate. Yep. So they were prepared because of these previous outbreaks to ramp these systems up. That's kind of a story across Asia, having been burned. Yeah, once. absolutely. And there was, you know, even, uh, you know, like the capability to be able to build those tests. I mean, that is not something even that comes overnight or in the last, you know, five years that comes from Korea's biotech sector developing over the last, you know, 10, 20 years and having that expertise in place. But it does also come from, you know, the fact that after that, the government did invest in research grants that they gave to some of these companies to be able to research how do we do this the next time it happens. And so actually the four companies 
that had their testing they had had their testing kits approved uh, the soonest, they had actually all received funding from the government um, in 2015 or shortly after the MERS outbreak uh, to prepare specifically for being able to develop these diagnostic kits. Now you mentioned on the tracing, you described it, but I didn't hear in their app. <laughs> because a lot is being made, right? Of you've got to get right. these tracing apps and you've got to get them installed on your phone, but you didn't say that. That's right. Uh, Korea has not used any form of contact tracing app whatsoever. And of course, you know, Singapore has been, uh, as you know, a, a leader in that regard. Yes. And pretty much now the rest of the world is looking to the Singapore model or a variation of it. But the Korean system has totally been this centralized, um, you know, government-led big data operation, and it has not relied on people putting things on their phone. It is, I think, a common misconception. A lot of people think that Korea has done a lot, uh, has used a contact tracing app because they have used other apps, and there have been other apps that were developed, not even by the government, but by, you know, citizens, developers who wanted to put something out there. There's certainly a lot of data that the government has released, right? Like in Singapore, there are these travel logs I think even more detailed than in, than in Singapore, where if someone tests positive, the their movements since they were you know suspected to be contagious, they're all published. You know, in the case of Korea, down to the minute exactly where they were, whether or not they were wearing a mask. You know, not just what building they were in, but sometimes it's saying what part of the building they were in or what room, whether or not they were going, to, uh, whether they, when they went to the bathroom. I mean, it's extremely detailed. And there were apps that then would take that data and um, put it in a more digestible form for people. And there was one app called Corona 100 Meter that alerted you if you went within 100 meters of one of these places. But um, that's not actually contact tracing, right? It's not saying you were in contact here. You were, you did cross paths with this person in the path. So actually that app, epidemiologists I spoke to said those apps aren't even really that useful because there's not so much reason to avoid those places because they've been disinfected in the meantime. So if anything, because they've been identified, those are probably safer than anywhere else. So uh, there have also been apps that Korean government has used to monitor people who are supposed to be in quarantine, right? If you come into the country, you have to download an app and that app then, you know, uses your phone's location to make sure that you're not leaving where you're supposed to. And you have to check in and you know report your symptoms twice a day, um, or whether, whether you have symptoms or not. And um, so they certainly have done things with apps, but they have not actually done this contact tracing model of Bluetooth, digital handshakes, and, and keeping track of who, what, you know, what other phones or devices you're coming across and using that to actually inform the tracing. That's not part of the Korean playbook. And I think there are a lot of questions about whether what the Singapore app has done, as groundbreaking as it is, as cool as it is, um, whether it's actually helped. And I, I don't think it really has. And whether those kinds of apps will be able to help other countries, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. Well, and Singapore is struggling with uptake uh, on the app. I mean, obviously, this is a city that right. is famous for its uh, law and order approach. And they have not required the installation of the app, but they have been saying, look, we're not getting enough installation of the app. Um, so right. even I in think they're Singapore, at about 20% now. Yeah, it's, that, it's fairly right? low. It's fairly low. Right. So even in Singapore, you can't get people to install an app expressly for that purpose. So imagine yeah. the challenge elsewhere. <laughs> Especially in countries that may be more skeptical of big tech, you know, suspicious of these tech companies. 
the ironic thing, I think, is actually that cryptographically, the protocol that Google and Apple have proposed is pretty secure. Cryptographers are pretty happy with it. Um, it and incredibly, you know, they what they have proposed is more secure than what originally a lot of European governments wanted to do, which was uh, surprising to a lot of people because <laughs> typically you think of European governments as extremely privacy conscious. Yes. Um, but in fact, I, I think Google and Apple, what people say, the people that I've talked to, they say they've done a pretty good job. But still the question is, are enough people going to download them for it to be effective? And if you need 60, maybe 80% of people to, to download it to really uh, be effective, who knows if we're going to reach that mark. Yeah, and on this Google and Apple uh, initiative, I guess they'll share the basic output, which is you need to contact these people, but they won't share with the government's locations and identifiers. Do I have that right? That's right. The app, the well, the, the protocol that uh, Google and Apple have proposed records no location data whatsoever. Ah. It only records the list of devices that it sees. And those lists, because what your phone does is anyone who has uh, this functionality enabled, what they'll do is they send out a little chirp of a string of, of text and characters, and that serves as an identifier. And it rotates every 10 or 15, 5, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, they swap it out for a new one. So what the government sees is only those identifiers, those pseudonyms, those little codes of people that test positive. That's the only thing that the government will actually store. And they're totally meaningless to anyone who sees them in principle because they're literally just strings of numbers. They have no identifying information. They have no location information even. You know, where the, uh, that chirp was recorded or broadcast, that's not included. So all they do is send out that list then to every other phone and then every other phone can say, ah, that's uh, a chirp that I saw. I recorded that. Uh, and that means, ah, I came into contact with this person. But there is actually no location information, so the contact tracers, unless they follow up, they won't actually know where that encounter took place. And that's why so many people stress that you do need manual contact tracers, that this, this Google-Apple protocol is not a substitute for manual contact tracing. And that, honestly, is also the, the model that Singapore has followed. The developers of Trace Together, the Singapore app, are very upfront that they feel this app only works uh, in concert with the manual human contact tracing system that Singapore has in place. So again, to contrast this with South Korea, South Korea does get locations. They are very much using the technology right. to find the exact spot people were in at any moment. Yep, and they're getting it from the cell phone companies. So you don't actually have you know control over um, <laughs> whether or not they get it. They just get it. They, they huh. pull that data in from the cell phone companies, as well as your credit card uh, transaction information. If you're, if you're not willing to give that up, they can just go to the credit card companies and, and get that. But those measures are broadly supported, and they were enacted by the legislature, uh, by South Korea's National Assembly, following the 2015 outbreak. So, you know, this people talk about uptake being crucial. Well, this is an example where the South Korean public did have buy-in. This is what the hmm. elected representatives of the people decided we should do uh, after the MERS outbreak when the next crisis hits. There have been uh, some privacy concerns about the level of detail that is being published. Mm. Um, there's actually no set guideline for how much information to publish. Uh, the law gives people 
uh, gives localities pretty much free reign to publish almost whatever they want, short of a, hmm. a name. But they'll publish age, you know, gender, occupation, some will. And a lot of people feel that's going too far, that that is potentially identifying information for in a lot of cases. Um, but there is not, there's, there's practically no pushback against revealing where people went, the locations, which are, which is the crucial part, you know, being hmm. able to say where that person was so that you can cross check against your own movements and say, well, maybe I came into contact with this person. That's the point of releasing that data. And that is pretty much supported across the board by the Korean public. Hmm. Well, I feel like we should just mention real quickly, a MERS scare is a really big deal because MERS, the case fatality rate is 30% or a third. Yeah. I mean, around around that orders of magnitude greater than COVID-19. So that can really put the scare <laughs> into a public. Right. And in Korea, right. In the case of the 2015 outbreak, it, um, there, there were, I believe 38 deaths and 186 cases. So wow. it absolutely shut the country down uh, voluntarily. Not, the government didn't impose a lockdown, but people just did not go out. Um, very, very similar to, to what happened this time. So I think there's a certain amount of muscle memory built into uh, the Korean public when it came to wearing masks, you know, staying at home before people were even really, before the government was implementing a social distancing guideline. Hmm. Um, people just were staying home because uh, uh, out of caution, really. So I know the government passed this, and that is the theory of democracy, that if a government passes something, then the people must automatically agree. But <laughs> has, has South Korea not seen any pushback on this? You, you said concerns, but look, we're seeing you know, protests all around the world. There were initially, initially, honestly, the response was quite polarized um, politically. Uh, we have a liberal government in charge right now. Um, but those policies were passed under a conservative uh, government uh, previously. Uh, in 2015, you had Pakane still in power. And, you know, she actually took a huge hit in her approval ratings or a sizable one um, based on their response because the government wasn't transparent. It wasn't releasing the names of the hospitals that were involved because that was the thing with MERS. Almost all of the local transmission was not happening out in the public on subways or in bars and restaurants. It was happening in hospitals because of a lack of uh, a lack of infection control within the hospitals. Hmm. So, I think really what you have here is not so much you know, yes, pr privacy is a part of this, but also transparency is, and having that information about where a person is and releasing that information to the public. That's precisely what the Park administration was criticized for not doing. And so transparency is also a value in this. It's not just, you know, privacy versus public health. There's also an element of transparency that the Korean government, that the public expects the government to live up to. And so collecting this data um, and making it public is in effect fulfilling that part of their remit. Well, all of this is added up to South Korea having an enormous outbreak and absolutely crushing it in short order. I looked at a graph before we talked and I couldn't believe the spike and decline uh, and that's mm. that's held pretty steady so so describe for me what daily life has been like throughout this I'm currently living in a lockdown in Singapore <laughs> what has daily life been mm. like there 
Well, right now, daily life is pretty much back to a, a, a new normal. It's we have never been in lockdown. The government has hmm. never um, locked down. In the early stages, it felt like a lockdown because everyone was staying home. The streets were were empty, just like they were during MERS. And as it became clear, you know, just how how infectious this was, how contagious it was, what how this was going to disrupt our our lives, uh, people people did stay home, and the government issued social guide uh, social distancing guidelines. But they never closed anything down, even in Daegu, where the Shincheonji cult. A cluster emerged. General businesses like restaurants and and most bars, which in Korea operate under, if you're serving food, you you operate under a restaurant license. So most establishments were open, unless the owners decided to close because nobody was was coming there. Oh, <laughs> but it wasn't a, a lockdown like you'd you'd typically think of. So daily life has slowly then come back to normal as people began to feel more. More confident, and uh, you know, frankly, having you know cabin fever and, and getting out. You know, people talk a lot about how oh, is there something cultural with Koreans or Asians in general yes. that they're obedient, that they are uh, listening to authority here? But actually, you know, people stopped following those social distancing guidelines and going out of the house and crowding parks at the same rate as anywhere around the world. <laughs> Everyone. I think you know that cabin fever, that urge to get outside, uh, that is pretty universal. I yeah, think. everybody feels caged. We certainly saw up. that here. Wow. Yeah, the difference is that even as people did that, even as people were going back out and flouting some of those guidelines, um, people were still wearing masks. Uh, contact tracing was still happening. There were still um, as many tests as were needed, and the in the infection rates kept going down. And that's, I think, the the remarkable thing that um, you know. I think Korea is an example that shows you can open up, and do it in a way that is still able to keep things under control. And on the individual level, it is still that commitment to hygiene and social distancing and masks and these basic things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you know, businesses. You know, some businesses like gyms um, were required by the government to take, you know, temperature checks to install, uh, you know, thermal monitoring mm. so that there was a screening process in place for everyone who went in. It's not like they're not doing nothing, right? But they're taking, I think, in my opinion, they've been taking a lot of common sense measures, being very smart about how they screen, going for the low hanging fruit that where you allow people to go out into a park where it's a, it's a, it's a relatively low risk. Um, while still keeping schools closed, and um, schools just opened up um, this past week, actually. So there are certainly a lot of things that are different, and will be for a long time. But we're certainly, I think, lucky to experience a sense of normalcy that is much closer uh, to, to normal than the rest of the world. A lot of places around the world. Well, and what's extraordinary is um, South Korea even held an election. In the middle of this, That's millions right. of people went to the polls and there was no outbreak, correct? That's right. Record turnout, actually. I think almost, uh, I think 29 million voters. I think most of those were cast in person. And it was, it, it was a very well-organized event where everyone was screened uh, before they entered the polls. Uh, everyone was, had to wear a mask. Everyone was, was issued gloves which were immediately disposed of to, to actually fill out your ballot, cast your ballot. 
And if anyone was screened and found to have a fever, they were still allowed to vote, but they were led to a separate area, to a different, uh, to a, a polling station that was then entirely dis- completely disinfected and after that person voted. <laughs> so there were, in fact, measures in place even to allow people who had fevers or uh, to, exer- you know, to exercise their, their democratic rights. Wow, they could still was, uh, vote. <laughs> yes, and of course, all the poll workers were um, in protective gear. Mm. Um, it's, it was very impressive, I think. There were, uh, as of yet, there were no infections, zero cases actually traced to that election. And it's a contrast. I'm actually getting ready to move to Wisconsin next month. And I've been paying close attention to what's happening there. Of course, Wisconsin had an election as well recently. And the most recent, I think, studies have shown that maybe about 50 cases were have been traced or, or uh, identif- not identified, but they believe that there were 50 cases that you could attribute to that election. Hmm. And so the the difference in the level of preparedness, I think, was was pretty stark. Well, and of course, Wisconsin is a much more spread out uh, place, and it's like a fifth of the population of South Korea. So theoretically... Yeah, or even, I think, a tenth even. Yeah, yeah. yeah so much smaller. Yeah, very right? much, much smaller. But they still actually have almost exactly the same number of cases. Wow. So a, a case rate, you know, five to ten times greater than, than that of Korea. You know, you mentioned uh, Daegu, which is a, a city, and uh, there's, uh, y- you called it a cult. I don't know. Is that controversial at all? Is it a cult or a church? But it was the source, the original spark of thousands of cases in South Korea. You're right. Yeah, yeah you're right. I probably, the journalist, as a journalist, I shouldn't be calling it a cult. I would be probably better served to call it a religious sect. Or religious a sect. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, Lots yes, of it, lots of reports I've read have called it a cult. Uh, it, yeah, so this is not a it's an yeah a matter thing. of style and, and editorial <laughs> policy, right? But yeah. I guess uh, it was the classic thing of one person in a giant crowd happened to be religious in this case really sparked off the rise in cases. So large events yeah. are, are are seemingly bad news. Yes, that one person has been linked to you know fifteen hundred cases, I think was the final was the final tally uh, from that cluster. And um, it certainly shows just, you know, how quickly things can get out of control if you're not prepared. And that cluster in Daegu, those were, I mean, those were the darkest days for Korea's outbreak. And that was a period of time when the reports coming out of Daegu were very dire and, you know, similar to what you saw in places around the world where there were hotspots like New York and Northern Italy, where the effort that medical workers were putting in, the burnout, the exhaustion, the, the trauma, it was pretty intense. The difference is that the strategy of, of tracing and isolating and testing, because they tested over 100,000 people wow. who were associated with that, with that sect, uh, they were able to get it under control. And mm. that period was, it was bad, but it lasted about two weeks. Um, and pretty quickly, they were able to 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 flatten that curve. Wow, and that and that has been the rallying cry of this since the beginning is flatten the curve, and and South Korea did it. You know, just let me clarify just one thing: masks are required or not? Masks are required in some places and in certain uh, in certain settings. 
it's true that in the beginning, actually, you know, some places were shut down, like religious gatherings were were uh, were were banned hmm. in place, and and some uh, churches were pretty creative and actually held a services in dr- a drive-in movie uh, theater. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, so there are places where masks are required, gyms. Um, you know, I, I, there's a climbing gym in my neighborhood that that I've been to, and and everyone is wearing a mask at all times in there, and that is according to the guidelines that the government uh, has imposed. In some places, you know, in, in, even in parks, for a while they were also required, mm-hmm. um, but m- people typically want to wear the masks anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's their own desire to, or the peer pressure of knowing that everyone else is, and so you don't want to be that person who's not wearing a mask and you know being seen as putting other people at risk you know mask usage has been has maybe unlike in other places has not been something that the government has had to force people to do so do you think in the end do you think that the south korean model is scalable transferable to other countries or is it just a a magic system (laughs) that they've been able to create it's not magic. From a technological standpoint, there's very little here that could not be done in any country around the world. You know, every country around the world has has cell phones and cell phone providers that have this information. Not every co- country in the world is a you know credit card based economy, but um, but the ones that are, that information also exists. Certainly, if you look, for instance, um, like in the U.S., you you certainly have all of those elements in place, but surveys show that people don't want your government to have access to that information. Mm. On the other hand, all that information <laughs> is being sold for targeted advertising by <laughs> these companies. And so it's, you know, you say, is it possible? It's really a matter of political will. And is it politically palatable for, uh, for people? I, I personally think that if people say in the US understood, because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of people think Korea used, used contact tracing apps. A lot of people think it's um, you know, incredibly intrusive and, and certainly there are privacy issues associated with this. But I think if people actually understood that trade-off, that, what that trade-off actually is, that, that yes, that data goes from your credit card, card company where it already exists. Like this is not a new form of surveillance. It's already there but you're giving it to the government, to the public health authorities in order to uh, temporarily use it. I think if people understood that, then there might be more support for it. And if they realized that what that meant was you could go out, you wouldn't be under lockdown, you could more easily trace and, and, and find people. It's not, it's not a silver bullet, but I, I wonder if there would be more support for these kinds of interventions. It's, it's hard to say, but... I, I imagine there might be because I also don't see many Americans or you know Westerners over here who are upset about what the Korean government is doing with their data. You know, mm. people say, "Well, this is incompatible with a Western sense of privacy and individuality, whatever." But I don't see a lot of foreigners over in Korea going, you know, marching on the National Assembly <laughs> saying this is violating my rights. You know, right? People are pretty darn happy with. With the situation that they find themselves in, so 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 yeah, I I, I do question that aspect. Well, f- from from my perspective, I am sometimes amazed at how comfortable all of us are, including myself, 
with these massive private dossiers that these companies have on us uh, that we seem totally comfortable with because we can sync things on our phone, right? We, right. We're, we're perfectly happy because we get some advantage out of it, and we'll give it to these private companies that have no regulation, that have no democratic oversight, really. And we're totally comfortable with that. Whereas we have a clear public good here and an individual good in controlling disease, but you're absolutely right. You know, I'm American. I know my people, and we would flip. Uh, and I'm I'm guessing many Westerners would. And uh, but you're probably right. It, it hasn't been explained in that way. Um, but boy, it would be a, a really really hard push to get such a system accepted. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It would it would be a hard sell. And, you know, in myself as well, in about five weeks, I am moving back to the state of Illinois. So I will be right back in the soup uh, with you. Yeah, you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be uh, next door neighbors, at least. Yes. Uh, Statewide. We can compare notes. Uh, Mark, yeah. <laughs> Mark, this has been great. I really appreciate your taking the time. Well, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it, Bill. All right. And good luck with the move. Good luck to you, too. That's Mark Zastro, a freelance science writer based in South Korea, although, as you heard, soon moving to the United States. Thanks again to Mark for coming on the podcast. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please also check out our email newsletter, The Dispatch. You can find that at foreigninfluence.substack.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, if you like what you hear or read, sharing is caring. Take care, stay safe, and Nikolai and I will be back with our usual banter coming up on the next episode. Thanks.